You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the 112th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Apple Insider editor Mikey Campbell. Hello. It's been a while. A couple weeks. So, first of all, are you excited for new iPad models? Yeah, I am. Yeah. You're overdue for an iPad, aren't you? Um, no, I bought the, well, bought the 12.9-inch Pro when it came out. Yeah, and then you so. bought the 9.7-inch Pro. No. Really? Yeah. But you're letting me down here because you have every single one ever made. Um, no, I don't have the uh, iPad Air 2 either. Really? You skipped that one? Yeah. I am long overdue for an iPad. My last iPad was an iPad Mini 2, so, so I am ready. Uh, wow, yeah. What, what the news is, the news, is that there are new iPad models in testing near Cupertino headquarters. This should come as no surprise to anyone that they would actually have iPads out in the wild testing. But what happens here is that there are all kinds of people out there who look at their web traffic, right? People who run servers, people who run websites, look and see what kind of devices are accessing them. And occasionally, people spot interesting and unusual things, right? Sometimes, sometimes. Usually right, right before so a release, yeah. Funny how that works. So, so what did they find in these logs? Uh, new identifiers or new device identifiers uh, that point to either... Uh, 12.9-inch Pro refresh or the mythical 10.5-inch flagship that's supposed to come out this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know because there's just identifiers. They could they could be anything, but the numbers the numbers suggest that it's a uh, it's just the the update of the uh, last year's models. Right. So, in uh, a, a computer or an Apple product tends to be given a, uh, an identifier, as you say. For example, this, this very old uh, MacBook Air that I'm running right now is a MacBook Air 6,1 is its model identifier, right? Yeah. And the iPads from before the, the initial iPad Pro release were labeled 6,3, 6,4, or 6,7, 6,8. So what we've spotted here are iPads listed as 7,1, 7,2, 7,3, and 7,4. Mm-hmm. Are they updates to the airline? Are they updates to the pro line? We don't know, but they're indicative of new models. Something's coming. Right. Now, they don't necessarily have to be four separate iPads, right? No, they could be Wi-Fi versions and or Wi-Fi plus cellular versions of the uh, same iPad. So it could actually be just, just two models. Right. Those are technically different models because they, of course, require different hardware and different antennae, but for practical purposes, right, you're getting the iPad, whether it's got Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi and cellular. And that kind of lines up with uh, some of the rumors. Some people are saying that the 10.5 is not ready for prime time yet. So Why are they saying uh, that? What, what leads them to say that? Um, they're just saying that uh, manufacturing of the... Uh, well, it's, it's supposed to be a new design, right? So um, some of the supply supply chain sources are saying that manufacturing is going to start this month sometime. So probably around now, uh, in anticipation of a release, I don't know, late next month, maybe or something. So the, it, Apple could announce a new iPad, say in early April, like the 10.5 inch version, and then just start selling it a few weeks later, you know, like they could have like an event and release a 9.7, uh, 12.9 updates and the new 10.5 inch and say 
the 9.7 and 12.9 are available now or on Friday or whatever. And 10.5 inches coming in, you know, the end of the month. Alternatively, some people are saying, uh, there's rumors this week that they're just going to quietly update the 9.7 as a people are, people are thinking that it's going to be, um, relegated to it, to the entry level model. So they're just going to push that out as like a iPad air to refresh and just not have an event for that. And then have an event for the 12.9 and 10.5 sometime later iPad, now, uh, anniversary of the, uh, initial launch is coming up April 3rd, I think. So what, what does this mean for the processors that get used in these things? Like, you know, the, the, the A8X is probably going to stop being sold soon, right? Yeah, probably going to go. It's a little long in teeth. So the iPads will be A9Xs or, or higher clocked A9s. And, you know, we'll see the Pro stick with A10X or A11s, right? Yeah, well, A10X. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I think they're saying the 10.5 and probably the 12.9 are going to get the A10X Fusion. I don't know if they're going to add the Fusion onto that part, but... A10X, um, and they'll probably put. I mean, they they could probably get away with uh, the A9X in the, you know, nine point seven inch, if it's going to be a budget model, right? Or targeted at education and business. They don't really need the horsepower for that. Well, you say that, but those those kinds of applications tend to hold on to those devices longer, so they sort of do need the horsepower. Yeah, but it's not really like a computer computer you know in the traditional sense <clears throat> well you say that i so i've been using this macbook air with every application in full screen mode and using gestures on the trackpad to switch between applications just as you would with an ipad mm-hmm. and i've been doing this and, and to sort of prepare myself for what it would be like to use an ipad as a computer mm-hmm. how's that going for you Quite well, actually. Surprisingly well. Nice. It's kind of a pleasure. It's it's uh, totally a different way of using a computer. I've, I've Traditionally, I've had tons of tabs open and tons of windows open and all stacked on top of each other, all very messy, and then used uh, Command-H to hide applications as I switched through them to try and give it some sign of semblance of order. And here, by keeping everything full screen, it's been really freeing. It's been liberating. Liberating. It, it has. I mean, it's been... Liberate uh, yourself from the windows. It, it is, though. It's, it's been... For, first of all, you have a lot more uh, negative space on the screen, so things breathe better, right? The elements aren't crowded in by windows sizes and things like that. And second of all, you're focused on just the application you have open. But, but I, I, I'm looking at my screen now, and I have one, two, three, four, five... I, I have six applications open that I'm looking at. Yeah, so? So I need I need them. No, you don't. I need them all right now, right here. You, you really don't. my face. Uh, the only pain that I've felt so far doing this has been dragging and dropping things from Finder into other applications. So, for example, yeah. if I wanted to give an image to you in Messages, it, it becomes a challenge to switch back to a, a desktop that has Finder on it and then drag and then swipe across the application to paste that in. You should get, um, have you heard of Yoink? No, I've not heard of Yoink. Yoink is a is Y O I N K. I use it. It's yeah. basically a just a, like a little cubby that you put on. You can put all kinds of you know any kind of file and then transport it across your desktops, drag and drop style. You're gonna have to give me a link to that, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Indeed. It's not a clipboard manager. It's it's sort of like a 
It's like a visual clipboard manager, kind of. Okay, I've been using iClip, but I haven't really been dragging things into it. Yeah, you can you can drag and drop, and then it'll stay there. It'll you know persistent, and then you go into the next swipe over your next desktop or whatever, and you can drag and drop out of there or onto a app or whatever. It's pretty neat. All right, well we'll have to link to that. Um, all all of this makes me look forward to using an iPad as a full time kind of thing. And so I'm going to have to get my hands on an iPad Pro. You know, I'd like to get my hands on on you know, I, the the 10 point whatever inch, the 10.5 inch. But I would be happy trying out the uh, the 12 12 inch. The thing's a beast. Is it? Yeah. Send it over here. <laughs> would I? You're not using it. <laughs> I am most certainly using it. Are you really? Yeah. I mean, not as much as I would like because it's not like portable for me okay of course it's like a huge slate yeah um, but yeah i mean if you're if you're going just ipad it's definitely portable right i mean it's much more portable than a macbook but well, I, that's been the problem for these things right people have bought ipads thinking they're computer replacements and for a while they haven't been or at least not for everyone and then people buy them and use them as viewing TV in the bed kind of thing, right? Watching Netflix mm. or Hulu. And you can do that perfectly well on a 9-inch or 9.7-inch, but it's kind of cumbersome to do it on the 12.9-inch. Yeah. And and so you end up with this thing that, especially if you already have a laptop or, or a primary computer, sort of becomes uh, not as useful is the thing that I'm noticing some people experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Would you say that that's been kind of your experience, that you just haven't picked it up as much as you thought you would? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't know. I I feel like you either have to go one way or the other. I mean, at this point, you're like you have to you have to go all Mac or all all in on the iPad if you really want to do the iPad thing. Because there's things that you're gonna miss on the iPad, and then you'll just end up going back to the Mac. But if you go all in on the iPad and kind of force yourself to use it, even though it does have shortcomings, I think I think you could. I mean, some mm-hmm. people do it, right? Right. But, but you're I don't not think, going to because you're used to having six applications open at a single time. Yeah. Until Apple solves the problem of uh, true multitasking, like real multitasking, I don't know if I can use an iPad for work. Like, I need to have these. Okay, I don't need six, but I need at least, I need more than the split screen that they offer. I need more than two apps open at one time you should try and stick with split screen and full screen and see how you get on force yourself to do it it'll be an education for you to see just what it's like and what it would be like if you were ipad only maybe maybe i'll do that it'll be an experiment the best kind of experiment so the rumors have pegged this 10 and a half inch tablet to launch in march april or may and and so basically what we're thinking is that Apple would debut the new iPad products somewhere around March 20th and 24th. And as you said earlier, that the the actual ship dates would follow after that. Yeah. Or actually, I, I kind of, um, I mean, since it's getting so late, right, I, I think they might push back to April, early April event, because um, they haven't sent out the usual invites yet. So it's getting kind of late in the day for a late March event. I wouldn't be surprised to see something on on or around the original iPad launch. You know, kind of tie that in somehow. Uh, but it's that's a long Monday. way since then, though. I mean, it's an entirely different device in some ways. 
I know. That's a, they, they can compare and contrast. It'll be uh, interesting. I think early April is a good uh, is a good target for now. Cool. We'll see. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about Mara. So Mara is a application that runs on your iPhone, runs on your, uh, and, and basically it helps runners map their routes, create playlists to get themselves pumped up, and track their progress. So the the thing is that when you run, you don't really want to look at your phone because that would suck, right? Yeah. So Mara is a hands-free running assistant that uses voice recognition and the microphone in your earbuds to help you optimize your runs. You can tell her what kind of run you'd like to do, ask questions about your speed, pace, or location, and have her play albums and playlists from your music library. And it can also help you compare to your past runs and warn you about changes in weather, things like that. You can also connect Mara to Amazon Alexa-enabled devices and ask about lifetime statistics and records you've set while you're ready to go for your next one. So, you know, if you're, if you're at home getting ready to run, you can ask about how your past ones have been before you go out the door. And Amazon will tell you about them. And you can go ahead and visit mara.ai to download your free virtual running assistant today. That's M-A-R-A dot A-I. Which is, it's, it's kind of, so we're in this whole world where voice first is sort of becoming a thing, right? Yep. The, uh, and, the no screen, the no screen culture is taking over. Well, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording, where uh, these, these virtual assistants are somewhat limited in terms of their vocabulary and what they can respond with, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they're, they're not great conversationalists yet. No. That'll be another and num- few years. Well, so it's interesting because I've been doing some reading, and it looks as if uh, DeepMind, which is an alphabet-owned property, uh, has figured out how to have these these backends of neural networks become more elastic and learning, as opposed to to simply programmed and trained, which has been the way things have been done in the past. Yeah. So the way neural networks worked in the past is that you would you would train them. Right, you would you would put up uh, pictures, for example, and teach them the pictures meant vocabulary through repetition, and and that was just hardcore learning, straightforward training on one kind of thing. And what they're doing now is they're they're actually I'm going to get this wrong, but but it's interesting. What they're doing is they're saying that uh, learning through repetition and learning through experience uh, forms memory, where where the more neurons in the neural network that are linked, the stronger the memory, and the fewer of them, the weaker the memory. And that rather than training for a specific task, simply exposing to, to different situations and having the neurons form those stronger links imitates how human minds learn. Mm-hmm. And that you, you end up with a, a network that is weaker at a specific task, but stronger across all tasks because it can pull things from past memory and apply them towards the, the task at hand. Where Haven't they been training on it this? can't. Yeah, I think, weren't they working on um, this kind of uh, neural learning for like a couple of years? Did they make a well, breakthrough or yes, something? Yes, but they just had the breakthrough this week. Oh, interesting. Cool. And, and the example that I read was that they had been training in, in the past. They'd been training on specific games. And here they, they taught it to play all Atari 2600 games. And uh. that in the past, the way it would work is when they'd put a game in front of it, it would, if it had played, been trained on the game in the past, it would play it perfectly. But if they'd take it to another game, it would forget everything it knew about the first game and would have to train on that game. Here, once it was learning from the first game, it could carry those experiences over to the second game. Mm. So we're getting there. We're going to end up in a place where within the next five years, probably, we're going to have artificial intelligences that can respond intelligently. Yeah. 
you know, this is something that they used to say was going to be a 30-year problem, right? There was no way to solve being able to answer all of the, the myriad of questions that could possibly be asked in all of human knowledge. I think we're going to find that it's going to happen a lot faster. I hope so. I'd like to see that before I die. You planning on dying anytime soon? I don't plan on it, but I mean, you well, never know. Right, then. You never know. Just saying. Yeah. So tell me about this machine that Apple uses in the, the back of house of their stores. Oh, uh, to replace screens and such. Yeah. What, what is, what's going on there? Uh, so like, <clears throat> so this week, uh, or last week, I think motherboard put out a so-called bounty for a picture of one of these iPhone repair and calibration machines. I think they call it forgetting that there was already a picture of one that came out four years ago. But in any case, uh, it's basically a industrial looking, um, mold device. That yeah. I mean, no, what I'm seeing here is a, is a machined fixture made out yeah, of, of yeah. So uh, Delrin plastic. Yeah. So that's like inside a housing that houses a, a larger machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just the interface, the user interface, I guess you, you know, you call that's the just a fixture interface. that holds the iPhone, but there's a greater machine around it. Yeah. And it has like all kinds of different tools for calibrating the screen and the cameras and other sensors and all that stuff. But the important thing is that it connects uh, to Apple's internal servers to authenticate touch ID modules and other components like screens and such. So basically this is the only way that you can um, officially replace a touch ID uh, home button without oh, okay. it throwing so, up the like error 53 last message. Year, I was about to say that, right? Last year there was the, the error 53 error that came when people had their touch IDs replaced at third-party uh, iFix iPhones kind of service centers. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Right? And they they overcame that by just simply uh, fixing it with a software update. But mm-hmm. um, this is the machine that, that author- authenticates those? Yeah. So basically it taps it, uh, doesn't tap into, I mean, it gets the, the okay from Apple servers and, uh, provisions that home button to that particular device. It's a security measure basically. So you can't just go around and replace home buttons willy nilly. Well, but that's the thing that they're going to run into, right? Because Nebraska, I think has, is arguing for right mm-hmm. to repair laws that would allow supplies of parts and repair manuals to third party repair centers. Yeah, so this is a machine that Apple does not want uh, unauthorized people to get their hands on because that would be bad. And, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, advocates of right to repair say that releasing these tools and these manuals would drive down repair prices, which, you know, could be true, probably true. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's Apple's uh, goal to corner the market on iPhone repairs, as many have uh, posited. They, that's not their main source of revenue. It's so that um, they do it so they can offer a consistent user experience across all their products, and you know, not worry about security infiltration and like you know, bad malware stuff coming on on board, which, which, uh, releasing a, you know, a machine like this in the wild would do. So, I mean, I don't know, right to repair. It's good to have choices, obviously, but, um, at the same time, 
I think people who use Apple products value their privacy and security as well. So it's kind of a difficult balance to strike. Right. Well, and when you have a monopoly provider of repair parts or repair services, you're, you're beholden to whatever they want to charge to do it and, and whatever the availability of the parts is, right? Yeah. You know, this is, this is one of the things when we know about the automotive world is that you, you aren't required to take your car to the dealership only. You can take your car to any shop and you can buy aftermarket parts and they don't void the warranty when you use them. Yeah. Right, so that's that's where this right to repair kind of thing comes from, and, and for Nebraska, it comes from uh, farmers who are used to, to having very expensive farm equipment, and if it's only repairable by the makers of the equipment, then again they can come out and charge whatever they want to charge, and it'll put you out of business as a farm. Right, the you you have to be able to service things, and still not have to void the warranty. Apple, uh, when they were lobbying the. They, they lobbied the Nebraska bill, which is... They, they lobbied the legislature, hearing. right? Yeah. Well, they didn't lobby legislature. They, they had a talk. They had a talk with a bill sponsor. Okay. So, I mean, it's kind of like a soft lobby. But anyway, um, they said that they would be okay with the bill as long as it didn't apply to phones. So they're very keen on protecting iPhone. They're, they're happy to have Macs serviced third party. Yeah. Macs, iPads, whatever. Just not iPhone. Wait, iPads also, just not phone. Yep, just not that's phone. interesting because that's it is that's. Interesting. I mean, they they've allowed for third parties to service Macs under warranty for years, for a long, long time. They they've had authorized resellers that can access and support servicing. But iPad, I would have thought, would have been as locked down as the phone. Guess not. I mean, it has a Touch ID module. Mm-hmm. Well, so does it Mac. Runs now. iOS. What's what's the difference? Don't know. They maybe the fact that a uh, iPhone contributes to a significant portion of their revenue and they want to keep it just theirs and their own. They want full control over the entire platform. That doesn't surprise me, but it just seems like a weird distinction. Yeah. I don't know. That's what they said. So uh, I don't know. All right. Do you wear your Apple watch? Um, I haven't been recently. No. Okay. So to rehearse, you have an iPad 12 inch pro and you don't use it very much, and you have an Apple Watch. Which model are you wearing? Do you have the original? The original stainless. Sport? Ah, the original stainless, as a man befitting your refinement should have. And you don't wear it either. Uh, I haven't been recently. No. What gives? Explain yourself. Um, I just found it. Well, I found it irritating to charge it every every night. Although, okay. I mean, I charge my phone every night, so it doesn't really. Yeah, I mean, but, but charging one yeah. thing is easy. Charging two things is cumbersome. Yeah. Well, I think just taking it on and off all the time is uh, just was, you know, kind of a little too much for me. When I wear a watch, I mean, it's not, uh, I don't know. I think there's like this stigma for me with smartwatches because the word <laughs> watch is in there. I mean, I'm, I'm used to watches that I wear all the time. Right, a watch is what something that I. What kinds of watches are those? Yeah, you know, it's whatever, like Seikos or Omegas, stuff like that. <laughs> kind of a world of difference between those two, aren't there? Not really, Grand Seiko, bro. That's where uh, it's at. You have a Grand anyway. Seiko. Anyway, yeah. okay. So, so uh, ages so, ago, yeah. I sent you a Pebble, right? Ages and yeah. ages ago, I sent you the first Pebble, and it had a battery life that was reasonably respectable for a smartwatch. It was uh, yeah. like a three-day 
three day battery. Yes, I mean that that's cool. I mean, so I don't. I'm not used to taking my watch on and off every night, right? Or even sometimes during the day if it gets low. To me, that's. I think. I don't know. It's much more of a, a wearable device. I think if they concentrated more on the wearable, or if I concentrated more on thinking about it as a wearable device rather than a watch replacement, then I would be more apt to use it. But it's just something in my head that's like, this is a watch, it's supposed to operate in a certain manner, and it does not. I have news for you. <laughs> what? Swatch yes. is going to take on the Apple Watch with really? their own custom operating system and their own custom watch. Mm. Now, it's not going to be a Swatch watch, because they've done that before. This is The first one's going to be a Tissot-branded watch. Tissot being one of the, the more affordable Swiss watches, but a high-quality Swiss watch that you could get. And uh, what they're aiming at is they want to, to target something like nine days of battery life. Is yeah, what I it's, think good it. stuff. it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Their thinking is that you know, they need to do good notifications, they probably need to do mobile payment through it because they've done NFC payments in the Swatch Bellamy watch that came out uh, a year ago. And they're, they're going to have it catered to, to Android phones and iOS. It's going to be their own operating system. They're not just repurposing Android Wear. Yeah. And, uh, but, but aiming at that higher battery life is what they think they want to do it. They, they don't want Swatch to become the industry standard for smartwatches. They just want to make sure that they offer something with better data privacy and lower energy use. Could it be hard if you uh, incorporate a? Well, it depends what kind of screen they use. Is it going to be a true smartwatch with a full color LCD, or is it going to be a hybrid? Who knows? It's uncertain, but but they're pointing yeah. at data privacy and long battery life, and you know that was what made Pebble work was that it had longer battery life and that people came up with different ways of applying applications to it. Yeah. Right? People loved their Pebble. Until the developers abandoned it. And, uh, yes. That was that was a little unexpected. But uh, it, it had a good long run. Yeah. So the, the thing is, is that right now the Apple Watch is the only smartwatch that really seems to matter. And even it is still suffering from this kind of people put it on and then take it off and forget about it. Or, you know, people don't really use anything outside of notifications on it kind of problems, right? People don't really know yeah. what, it's, what it's for other than closing rings and notifications. And, you know, when you, when you make another smartwatch like this and say we're going to compete, well, okay, so what are you competing on? Well, you're competing on battery life. Good. Uh, what else are you trying to accomplish that you can't accomplish in other ways? What are you trying to do that's actually solving a problem for someone? And I think people are still trying to figure out what smartwatches do that solve a problem. Yeah. Yeah, there's not that killer feature out there yet. I mean, they're trying to blend in the health uh, health monitoring and stuff. but Yeah, everyone really, does that. Fossil does not, that. Uh, Withings by Nokia does that. What, what, what are we doing here that's actually solving something for people? Nothing yet, really. Solving the... Uh, <laughs> Solving the problem of uh, sinking money into new gadgets. Yes. So you can look pretty cool. Solving the problem of, of how the heck does Switzerland respond to the smartwatch fad. Yeah. Because so far it's been the Tag Heuer Connected, right? Which is an Android Wear watch, except very expensive. And the other one is the uh, the, the Frederic Constant um, smartwatches. Yeah. Which are 
basically very, very expensive looking. Uh, very well, they are expensive. They're not just looking. Uh, analog watches that have a stepper motor in them and are powered off of the the MMT Motion X kind of uh, movement. I don't know what they can do. Hmm. Payments is good. Is a I mean, yeah, but payments, payments is a good thing. Payments is hard because payments is for for NFC payments to work. You have to get all of the banks on board. Mm-hmm. And all of the banks have already gotten on board for Apple Pay, and some of the banks have already gotten on board for Android Pay. But to get them to go ahead and evaluate that they're going to do it for the Swatch Watch is another set of problems, right? They have to reach out to each of these banks individually to pull it off. It's the same reason that the NFC uh, card that you had, right, the card wallet, mm-hmm. didn't work. And it's the same reason that the, uh, the, the Wocket, which is another NFC wallet that I had, also didn't work because none of the banks ever got on board with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think they would be willing to play ball with the world's largest watchmaking conglomerate. Yeah. But the world's largest watchmaking conglomerate is not going to have a success waiting for banks to come to them. They're going to have to do outreach to all of the branches, all of the individual banks. They could do that. How many banks has Apple pay signed up, Mikey? Many, probably, I don't know. I didn't, I think the last time I counted was, well, it was well over a thousand in the U.S. Exactly. And so you're going to have to have the watch group, the watch conglomerate, set Mm. up a department to go after all of these banks and onboard them all. Could be. In the hopes that people buy their watches. There should be a, there should be a operating group as a go-between for all these companies. Let's start one. You and me will be the group. The middleman that takes care of clearing devices for NFC payments with banks. Yes. Think of the, think of the might, filthy lucre. You that. might have a, a business ready to go under there. Yes. <laughs> ready. Let's do it. Okay. So, uh, quick ways to get to financial ruin by Mikey Campbell. There we go. But this is a real problem, right? So, if you look at Australia... Australia has a couple of banks that are on board with Apple Pay, but the vast majority of them have been protesting, saying they don't want to get on board with Apple Pay because they don't want to well, give all of that there. up to Apple, right? Yeah. Well, they, they just want to hold on to their monopoly. It's a di- it's a different story in Australia, but well, what? Yeah, they they did say uh, what. There's a story well, that came out this week. The the story that we ran was that they were. <laughs> saying that Apple was a monopoly and that what they wanted to do is they said all of the other payment plans out there suck. They're not, they're not mm-hmm. even tenable, right? Mm. And that is the barcode that displays on a screen and then you use your camera to scan it kind of thing or the, the currency kind of style of, of using a QR code, that all of these things are just untenable. They're not, they're not good payment systems. That NFC is the only good payment system and that they need Apple to be forced to give them access, direct access to the NFC chip, so that their applications can run payments over NFC as opposed to using Apple Pay. Yeah, sounds uh, sounds suspect to me. Per- personally, I place this one in likelihood of happening as a zero, but uh, it will be interesting to see what happens when some judge forces them to do it, right? Well, then... Apple simply will not release Apple Pay in Australia. It's not a make or break market. Yeah. And they'll just, you know, um, they'll take their iPhone and go home. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. It's just an iPhone. It's not like every single person in Australia 
is required to own an iPhone, and that is the only way that you can, you know, facilitate NFC payments. Australia has a fairly mature NFC network already. Mm-hmm. That you know, yeah. So, I mean, it's not based on Apple. And if they're trying to horn in, they, the banks want to avoid uh, the processing fees, and they want to avoid any, you know, um, sharing of revenues with Apple and they want to keep a lock and key on their their own apps that or their own technology that they've created so they don't want to share it with anybody and they're kind of turning the tables and saying that Apple is the one that's not wanting yeah, to Yeah, we're not the monopoly, you're ball. the monopoly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting because uh, Apple is definitely not the payments monopoly in Australia. Certainly not. So, but in any case, I don't know. It's a it's a sticky situation. It's a sticky wicket there, indeed. How many apps on your phone are old and crusty and haven't been updated in a while? Probably, hmm, I'd say ten percent. No, that's, that's a little high. That's a little high. Maybe five percent. Five percent. That's a little low. <laughs> really? Well, I don't know. Well, I think the, for me, the apps that don't get updated get erased. Aha. So you have habits yeah. around this. So for years, I would just keep all of the apps ever on the phone. Mm. I, I would not delete unless something really offended me about that application. For the most part, it would just stay there. And I, I, there was a point where I had over 1,200 apps installed on my phone. Okay. So excessive. Well, I, I, uh, I erased it, and I only installed the ones that I felt like I would actually use. And so I would say that right now, there's probably 1% that go unused. But that they're all very current. They're all recently updated. And uh, I, I raise this point because Apple's been releasing developer betas of iOS and macOS, things like this. And the latest one threw up a dialogue that, that got splashed up on Twitter. And we also ran an article about it saying that, uh, warning, this application, if it's not updated, could stop working in the next version of iOS. Yeah. And if you think about it, over 187,000 apps on the App Store could simply just break with the next version of iOS. How many people are using those apps is what I want to know. Well, so there's, there's that. There, there are a couple of different positions, right? One position is yours, which is no one's really using those anyway. This is a good no, opportunity to clean house yeah. and get them out of the App Store and make the App Store easier to discover good things in. Just clean house, right? Mm-hmm. Another position is that developers are going to have to go back and update those things, right? Which means it's another opportunity to get another $1.99. Yeah, or they could just do it for free. You say that, but then that just leads to in-app purchases. Why do you want developers to starve, man? I don't. You want them to go hungry. Of course not. Pro-developer. Pro-developer. Uh-huh. Pro-developer is doing the App Store as a side side job because he's actually getting paid by someone else? That kind of pro? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is a, a real problem, right? If you're making apps for a living, $1.99 isn't going to cut it. You, you have to figure out how you're going to, to actually charge for things to get paid. Mm-hmm. And so that's the second part of the problem. The third part of the problem is there are apps that simply will not be updated, right? And a lot of those are educational apps that are never going to be updated, but they still work fine today. So, so what is the benefit of pushing this update and ruining apps that are functioning and are decent enough today that don't need the update? Um, that's a good question. 
Do you have an answer to it? Well, I don't. N- not a good one. What happens is that apps get pulled from the App Store, right? Even ones that work just fine. They're, they're the ones that gave the message a while ago that said, warning, this app may slow down your iOS. Mm-hmm. Fine. Don't leave it running in the background. Use it for what you want to use it for, and then uh, use the, the task switcher to kill it, right? The, then they go ahead and pull this, where they go ahead and throw up the, this, this will stop working in the future. So now they've relegated these apps to living on in the Google Play Store. They work fine on Android. And I wonder if, I mean, they obviously have uh, a mountain of device statistics. I wonder if people are running these 32-bit apps in the background and s- sucking the life out of their phones. And it's become enough of a problem that Apple has just said, you know. So they should manage that better. They don't have to cut it off like this. They can simply not let 32 app bit run in the background. Yeah, they could. Here's my greater point, right? Mismanagement of app stores is a big issue for me. And there are a couple of different kinds of mismanagement. There's mismanagement of search, right? Discoverability is a nightmare. Oh, yes. You accept that proposition? Yeah. Although it is, it's getting a bit, a bit better recently. Uh, Is it better on Apple TV yet? Huh. No, it's still a dumpster it's a, it, fire. Yeah, yeah. Apple TV is, wow, very bad. Okay. So discoverability is an issue. Um, the other thing is is pushing developers to do these things, right? There was, so Microsoft, before they ruined Windows Phone, they had the Microsoft Store for Windows Phone, right? And initially the Windows Phone Store was one where they didn't have the uh, the recommended for age 17 and above flag on it. It was it was simply, you know, load in your app, load in your description and stuff like that, load in your metadata and go. And they had developers who, who wrote these apps, put them out there because it was an experiment. No one knew if Windows Phone was going to go anywhere or not. Why not try and write for it? People did. And then they got far enough along. They said, hold on, hold the phone. We need to go ahead and put the NC17 flag or whatever in there. And instead of allowing developers to simply update their metadata, they required developers to upload a whole new build. And if you didn't upload a whole new build, your app got thrown out of the App Store. Mm. And so they ended up throwing out pretty much all the apps because none of the developers were motivated to make a whole nother build and go through the process. They shot themselves square on in the foot. I'm so surprised that happened at Microsoft. I know. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. It's, it's stunning. But Apple's not going to shoot themselves in the foot nearly as badly if they call 187,000 apps. But people who are using those apps will notice, right? Especially yeah, if they're kids' education apps well that aren't going to be updated. You know no one's going to update a kids' education app that's not making any money. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's a bad app. Yeah. You know, one of the knock-on effects is one where it could be that, that the next iOS that has this requirement is more slowly adopted because you don't want to give up the apps that would otherwise have worked. Yeah. And that, no, I don't know what they could do. Yeah. I guess they could build in something into iOS, but it might affect performance. I mean, the, the other way around it is having people keep around an old iPad that runs the old OS just to keep the old apps going. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) They can sell a 32 bit version of the, uh, iPad. Keep, keep that iPad too, that iPad mini two around, right? For your uh, retro apps. Your retro apps. So, Mikey, we've come to another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on before we go? Um, Is St. Patrick's Day coming up? It is, tomorrow, in fact. All right. Have a good one. (laughs) Excellent. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, At MikeyCampbell81 on Twitter. 
and Apple Insider, of course. I'm V Marks. I'm your host, and I want to thank you for joining. Uh, and let me let you know again about Mara. So Mara is this virtual running assistant, and it uh, allows you to ask questions about your speed, pace, or location, and you can play albums and playlists from music library all through the microphone in your headphones. She can also tell you how you're doing in comparison to your past runs and warn you about changes in weather. She'll track your progress by noting all of your hotspots, rough legs each time you run, and you can connect Mara to Amazon Alexa-enabled devices and ask her about lifetime statistics and records you've set while you get ready for your next run. Visit mara.ai to download your free virtual running assistant today. That's mara.ai.